Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. In Texas, you'll find many different species of grape varieties, some of which are indigenous to the area and have been instrumental in breeding rootstocks that have saved the post-phylloxera production of Vitis vinifera wine. But though grapes have been growing there for millennia, Texas's wine trade begins much later when Spanish missionaries and colonists brought European vines to the region. In fact, before Prohibition, Texas enjoyed a thriving, centuries-old period of wine production when the area was New Spain. Wine economics of the Spanish colonial era were quite different than the secular wine trade we're used to today. In the early days of New Spain, one of the primary objectives of the colonizers was to convert Native American populations to Christianity, and they needed missionaries and sacramental wine to accomplish this goal. The Casa de Contratación, a trade house established by Queen Isabella I, collected taxes on all goods entering Spain from New Spain. And the Casa also helped control and regulate goods that went in the other direction. In 1519, it was Casa policy to have cuttings sent in every ship that sailed to New Spain. They really wanted to make sure that there would be enough sacramental wine. Well, it worked. The spread of vine plantings, in fact, was so successful that in 1595, just 76 years later, Spain reversed their policy because they didn't want New Spain to be too self-sufficient having their own wine supply. Vinifera vines made their way to what is now New Mexico. Most likely, these were Mission or Pais grapes from farther down south, and it was most likely cuttings from these New Mexican Mission grapes that made their way to El Paso del Norte in 1659. One of the friars in a wine-producing New Mexican Mission, Garcia de San Francisco, had had much experience with winemaking, and he probably brought cuttings with him to El Paso del Norte, where he founded the mission Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de los Mansos. Technically, Garcia de San Francisco's mission and vineyards were in what is today Ciudad Juarez, in modern-day Mexico. It wasn't until 1848 that the border between the U.S. and Mexico was fixed at the Rio Grande, and eventually the south side of the city became Ciudad Juarez, while the city north of the Rio Grande became El Paso. Still, Garcia's influence on wine and culture in the region at large, including Texas, 
was one of the first viticultural impacts on Texas. What did his wine taste like? Well, in Garcia's day, they used a lot of hides during the fermentation process. Hides were used as stump troughs, and juice would flow from small holes in the hide to a hide bag, where eventually the wine would be transferred to barrels. Also, grapes would be harvested at extreme ripeness. After September 15th, but usually even later, in October. So depending on how strong the yeast was, the wine was either pretty sweet or very high in alcohol. In 1680, hundreds of Spaniards fled New Mexico after Pope's rebellion, a situation in which repressed indigenous groups banded together and revolted against the Spanish. Many of those who fled came to El Paso and settled north of the Rio Grande, in what is today Texas. Populations slowly grew in the area, and later in the 1800s, population increased again as gold rush travelers passed through. As the population increased, so did the amount of personal vines. Many everyday farmers had tiny vineyards that they used for personal consumption. The 1880s was an important decade for Texas wine. Three key things happened. Number one, Valverde Winery was established, a winery that has been in continuous operation since 1883, thanks to a prohibition pass for making Sacramento wine. Number two, Railroad infrastructure was laid down, which helped create routes for getting product to market. And number three, in 1888, an interesting character named Thomas Munson sent phylloxera-resistant rootstocks from Texas to Europe, which ultimately provided some extreme relief for the phylloxera epidemic. In the early 1900s, the Texas wine industry was amping up with extreme growth. But as with every other state's story in the U.S., Texas's wine industry was cut short with prohibition, and for the most part, vineyards fizzled out. What's happened in Texas since prohibition was repealed? Come back next week to find out. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine, and that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Mr. Chad Carey of the Monterey on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Uh, man, I'm happy to be here. I'm doing great. You're originally from North Texas. Oh, yeah. That's why I get to hate on it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah I am from North Texas. I, my, I grew up in Dallas, and then my, my dad was a football coach. And so 
we uh, we moved to a small town sort of outside Fort Worth, about about an hour and a half away. Bowie, Texas, named after the great Alamo hero Jim Bowie. And was your family into wine? Oh, God, not at all. No, that was not. I mean, it was a mysterious thing. Was I, any family on your street into wine? No, I don't. I, I have. It, it's weird. You know, North Texas is one of the culinary black holes in the United States. And I, I don't remember anybody drinking wine where, where I grew up. I mean, I, I was vaguely aware of it as a thing, but it was basically either frozen margaritas or, or beer. That was, that was what everybody drank. And so where did the switch happen for you? When did you kind of? When, uh, when I got to college, and it's funny because I didn't get into wine explicitly. Again, it was, it was I guess, my interpretation of it. It's an expensive drink. It's a, it's a ceremonial drink. I'd much rather drink, you know, beer and liquor or whatever else. And um, I got into it because I got into, you know, culinary food or whatever. And I just, it, it's silly. It's like, well, I guess I have to learn about wine if I'm going to learn about fancy food because that goes, that's what the fancy people drink when they, they, when they eat their fancy food. For you, was that kind of like, well, let's figure out what, how the other half lives? Or? Yeah, there, yeah, there was always this sort of attendant. It's weird. I think so much of it for me was sort of like not knowing it. It was mysterious, right? And so I wanted to find out about it. You know, the same way you probably want to look through your, you know, older brother's magazine stash or something. But, you know, and it's not just like discovering what wine is. I remember early on reading, you know, uh, Wine Spectator or Wine Advocate in the sort of the prose that they they would write about and the the adjectives from like, you know, 18 different food-related things. I'm like, holy shit, could a wine actually, could, could a drink actually taste like that? You know, um, I mean, half the stuff like, I remember like Robert Parker would use, what did he say? He would call it uh, pain grail or something instead of like, I guess, toast. But uh, like, I, I was like, oh my God, what are all these exotic sort of things? Like setting aside Garrig and whatever else. Venison water and cigar <laughs> and scrub brush. I was so into that. All, all that I wanted to do was be like, I want to see what liquefied asphalt tastes like, you know? Uh, I think I probably did with my Australian Shiraz face too. What was the year that you were like, oh, wine? That would have been, um, it would have probably been like 2000, 2001 or so when I finally like had enough money because of my professional career at the time to go out and explore it. And, and really it was, it was going to wine shops and stuff. It was also going and traveling to, to places like New York and being like, oh my God, I get to actually, you know, because part of the thing in Texas, you can't even, to this day, it's hard to find some of these wines, the, the ones that the, the trade is really interested in or that Psalms are really interested in. And so to be able to, uh, to go and and actually buy these wines is just it was amazing. So probably a little bit of both. You like doing the shopping part. I love. I, it's great. Who doesn't like that? I mean, that's the uh, again like these big bottle shops, almost like overload. You know, incomprehensible amounts of wine. How in the world can can we ever find it all? So the day that I proposed to my wife, which was in New York, we actually we went to eat at Veritas that night. And it, I almost like screwed up the date because of their really awesome big wine book that I just I found myself reading for like 30 minutes. That, that was probably a pretty aloof moment in my romantic history. Um, she wasn't digging the fact that you were ignoring her? <laughs> oh, she hates all this shit. Probably for good reason too. Like unless you're really into it. I mean, she likes wine, but I mean, it's it's sort of – she's very much – I think she's like probably most most people who like to drink wine, which is – they like to drink fermented grape juice, and they would prefer that it not taste terrible and cost a lot. And so, for me to you know devote so much of my mental energies to this silly little fermented grape juice hobby is is probably weird for her. Because you started to get really into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. It, it well, yeah. It sort of overtook my career, I guess, in a weird way. The, yeah. What was your career? Uh, uh, real estate development. How was uh, that going? Oh, it was great. I mean, like in Texas, that's just you know, it's sort of easy. It's like it, in in. To, to live up to everybody's um, expectations of what it is to be a Texan. It's like the Wild West. I mean, it's not like the stuff you have to deal with in, in big coastal cities. And for a guy like me who was, who was more of a back-of-the-class guy but was never afraid to hustle, 
that's, you know, it's sort of, it's a meritocracy in that sense. It rewards hustle instead of brains. Thank God. So it was, it was fun, but at some point, you know, well, I always miss the service industry, you know, working, working in school, I, I worked in restaurants and bars and both my wife and I, we, we both really missed it. Um, we love the industry. And as I became a bigger, you know, whatever culinary enthusiast, I, I wanted to find a way to get back into it. And, uh, yeah, I, I found a way. You used your free time to go to restaurants that people would say, "Oh, that's a good restaurant." Yeah, that was my that was my hobby. I mean, well, and again, it's the idea of mystery and learning about things. When you grow up in you know North Texas and in a pretty small town, the idea of of reading about these places and then actually being able to go into them. I mean, listen, I'm I'm 38 years old right now. I still get a huge kick out of you know a place I've read about and actually being able to go in. And and I, that's something that motivates me with the places that we do. A lot of the culinary work we do is underpinned by in in San Antonio where our restaurants are. You know, we want to be seen as the group that's doing more creative culinary things and pushing boundaries and not just saying, oh, well, people like cheeseburgers, so let's make them cheeseburgers. But a lot of our culinary guys, a lot of our our chefs and young cooks are, they don't want to cook something that they perceive to be cliche. Like whatever, we can't make, you know, steamed pork buns because Momofugu did them eight years ago. And it's like, you know, there's a, there's a 23 year old kid in San Antonio that's probably never left the state of Texas. That's a shitty thing to judge to judge him on. Like, you know, I, I like the idea of sort of more of what we do. Uh, people, people may have read about the Monterey or read about hot joy. And I, I don't ever want to be the sort of, of group where, you know, we take that sort of thing for granted because it, it was and remains a big thing for me to get to go and try out these places. But you did get out of town. I mean, you were visiting restaurants in yeah. other cities. Yeah. We, it was, um, it was a really fun thing for me to do. And I didn't really have any other hobbies. Like I played football and I drank a lot. So this is probably like my college party guy replacement hobby or something. But, you know, I played football in school and I, I didn't like, you know, hunt or play golf. And I detested most of the social crap that comes along with like being in the real estate business or whatever. So for me, it was great. My wife is, uh, she's the director of education at our, our large art museum in the city. So New York was a real obvious fit for us early on because she could go, go to galleries and go to museums and I could gorge myself on everything while she was doing that. And we could have dinner like normal people at the end of the day. Where are some of the restaurants where you're like, huh, I appreciate that, what they're doing. So for me, the, okay. So the first like aha culinary moment, I mean, everybody has their like inner fat kid moments that they grew up with, but I, I, <laughs> this is, this is straight out of North Texas. I had not had a, like a prime steak until my junior year of college which a friend of mine named Drew Harris, it was his, his birthday and his dad like gave him his credit card and said, take these guys out to the infamous Del Frisco Steakhouse here in Dallas. And um, I just remember, I mean, steak meant, you know, well, if it wasn't chicken fried steak, it was like, you know, a, a quarter inch thick sirloin cooked to medium well. And having like a medium rare ribeye just, I mean, it was like, it must be like what, when a kid tries sugar for the first time, like all the 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 unconnected synapses in the brain just all start overloading and firing at once. And so that was me with steak. And then from there, I guess my next big aha moment was having a tasting menu at a famous New York restaurant. It was it was uh, Jean Georges in in New York, and then we, we we basically went down the whatever. I think Michelin Star had just started coming out in New York by then. But we just I went down the Michelin Star list and said, oh, I'm going to do this, oh, I'm going to do this, oh, I'm going to do this. And so the tasting menu thing was the next wave for me, where it's like I it's just absurd if you if you didn't grow up with any culinary sense like. Getting hit with, you know, 12 different courses and all of, you know, the mousse-bouche and mignardise to echo them and all of the great little service style, it, it was sort of otherworldly. And then the third wave was the guys who came in and just tore all that shit apart, which is to say, like, 
that's silly. We don't you can you can make creative, inventive, thoughtful food without all of the attendant fussy bullshit that comes along with it. And so that's probably like my progression. But in a, in a weird way, it was always New York City for me. Probably, I mean, I I just think that that's that's where most of the culinary work emanates from. So it's still I have to get out of the habit of just going up there all the time. I think Kate's finally bored with it. But what's San Antonio like? I mean, your restaurants are in San Antonio. What's what's the story there? So, so San Antonio is a city like in, in in this way. It's not unlike all the other you know southern cities that have just seen a lot of population growth because it's it's cheap to live and it's cheap to do business, and so a lot of companies and people relocate here. It's uh, it's one of those places that has really sort of exploded in the last twenty years, coming from a place that was it was a, it's not a global city now, but it wasn't even really a national city, uh, and that's changed so much and. Um, it is very different than it, it has a very unique culture, and I would never compare San Antonio to New Orleans. But I think that there are some that there are some sort of ways that they rhyme with one another as cities. They have a unique and distinct culture and heritage that's a little bit different from places like you know Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, uh, and that sort of thing. What's interesting about San Antonio is for a long time it wasn't like a cool city. It wasn't Austin, and it wasn't a, a big city with a lot of money like Dallas and Houston. So it's sort of almost, I feel like that encouraged the development of really, really good people that that live there, meaning mostly in the terms that they're sort of laid back and very unpretentious. I mean, San Antonio to a fault is unpretentious. Um, it's it's a very easy city in which to live. There's just, there's not a lot of ego. People get along with one another. It's it's really sort of dreamy in that way. And 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of really great architecture. You know, San Antonio is so poor after World War II when all the other big Texas cities were sort of going crazy that it didn't make sense to tear anything down because there wasn't much of an economy there. And so you've got this great preserved fabric and they've always had a really active conservation movement within the city. And so there's a lot of great architecture. The people are really great. There's a lot of traditions and culture that you tend to, to find a little absent in some of the larger, more anonymous, you know, Southern cities. Um, in that way, it's great, but it, I mean, it is, it is slow. I mean, they, the joke is it's manana town and manana doesn't mean tomorrow. Manana just means not today. And that's, there's, there's moments where I sometimes wish our city would, would get its shit together a little bit more instead of relaxing and partying. So when you decided, Hey, you know, I think I want to get back into the restaurant business. I think I want to open my own place. What kind of route did you take? Man, it was the, it's, it's really the worst reason to open a restaurant, which is this place doesn't exist. And I think that me and my asshole friends would like to go there. And, but that's what it was. It was, um, you know, I had lived in San Antonio since 2001 and that man, it was a, it was a culinary ghost town. There were two guys that were doing great restaurants, a guy named Andrew Weissman, who actually got a lot of national attention for his restaurant, La Rev, but it was very expensive, you know, tasty mini format only. And then there's a young guy about my age when he started his business, Jason Dady, who was doing some really thoughtful things that were more informed by national food trends and all that sort of stuff. But aside from that, there was, I mean, there was nothing. It was, it was Tex-Mex and, and burgers, and that was really about it. And we'd reached the point when I decided that I really thought that something like the Monterey would make sense was, was 2009. I'm like, you know, there's so many people that are moving here for work and they're coming here from both coasts and they're coming here from Chicago and whatever. And they, um, it's increasingly rare that people haven't heard of all of the different culinary things. And of course this coincided with the explosion of, you know, of wine as a thing, food as a thing, you know, craft coffee, craft cocktails, all of the associated culinary stuff was happening sort of nationwide. And so it made sense it would happen in San Antonio. And I literally was one of the guys that would say like, God, it sucks to live here, 
because of the culinary scene. It's it, it well, I should say it this way. It sucks to live in a city that you really like living in, but the, the food options are crap. We really have to cook for one another if we're going to do cool stuff. And so I just said, okay, you know, smart guy, if you think it's so easy, this is me. This is some self-loathing that we're getting out here. But like, all right, smart guy, if you think it's so easy, go open it. And the circumstances uh, sort of came together with a woman, Stacey Hill, who owned the real estate where the Monterey is now. And we worked together on opening on opening the restaurant. And it was very, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost laughable now, but it was totally a a labor of love, fun, dreamy, you know, hippies sitting around a fire playing drums sort of thing. Like we're going to, we're going to do this, this beautiful adventurous restaurant in San Antonio. And we believe, we believe it's going to work. I actually didn't think it would work. I I thought it would be a a little secret for the, the tiny percentage of San Antonians who are into, you know, culinary dork stuff, but it, it became a, it became a little bit bigger than that. When you opened it up, what was it like? (sighs) Well, we were sort of overwhelmed. The, the building is tiny. It's 900 square feet. And we, we only have, we have a, a pretty big patio, but we, we only seat 24 people inside. And the building, it's tiny. Low, it's, an, it's an old converted gas station. So the ceilings are tiny and everything's inadequate. And it's not, it's not especially comfortable. I, I think a lot of it coincided with the fact that we were the only restaurant at the time that was sort of doing progressive food, whatever, whatever the fuck that means. But um, I think it just took off because, you know, San Antonio has a metro area of over 2 million people. It's not like, it's not a tiny place. It's not like Lubbock. So I think that we just, our timing was correct. And I think that we had enough swagger to where we keyed into people who wanted to go to places that pushed culinary norms that didn't necessarily fit into the neat box that not just in San Antonio, but in every big city that restaurants ought to fit within. And we were ripping off a lot of places like like Mofukusan Bar and, and some places like that that were already sort of pushing in that direction it's hilarious now, but I remember, uh, well, it's not hilarious. It's just commonplace now that when you go into a place and they say, we're, we don't course food, we're going to send out the, as it comes. I mean, that's almost a cliche in San Antonio right now. No one was doing that, you know, at the time at the Monterey. Substitutions politely declined. I mean, God, we caught, we caught hell from that, including from like, you know, food writers in our crappy little local newspaper that just couldn't believe that we would have the audacity to say that that wasn't what was going to happen. And it turned a lot of people off. And to this day, a lot of people would tell you like, oh, the Monterey, those guys are hipster snobs or whatever, whatever they'd want to say. But at the time, it was, it was embraced by a number of people who were, who were finally just like, okay, thank God someone's doing something with some conviction. Even if it's like, you know, even if I don't like it or a lot of people aren't going to like it, they're at least got a point of view about something. For me, the cardinal sin in life is, is being fucking boring. You can, you can, be, you can fail at a lot of things and you can – you can fall short of whatever you want to do, but being boring is probably a sin that you should be condemned to death for. And what did it look like on the wine side? At first, it was it was a lot leaner, only because I was I convinced myself that if you're going to be wild in your art, you need to be bourgeois in your life. And so we had a few sparklings, a few whites, and a few reds. And what was what I really wanted to do, you know, so much of what the Monterey was informed by was what I didn't like about other restaurants, quote, you know, regular restaurants, and I'm. On the wine side in particular, I hated the markups. I found it, aside from it seeming price gouchy, I thought it was I thought it was stupid. Like you know, the math is not linear for beer that costs a dollar and fifteen cents to be priced at five bucks versus you know a bottle of wine that costs you fifteen dollars that you need to sell for you know fifty nine or whatever the restaurant metrics are. And I it, it was crazy to me. And I just as an enthusiast before I opened the place, I would always say. You know, if if you guys would would have wine that was more reasonably priced, I'd knock back three bottles instead of this one. And if you had, you know, more selections in that sort of like 
25 to $40 a bottle range, I'd buy a lot more and I'd come here more often instead of it being like, you know, you know the deal. It's, it's hard. In most places, if you're fishing south of, you know, $60, it's slim pickings in a lot of joints. And, and I didn't want our place to be that. You didn't want to be special occasion. I didn't want to be special occasion. And well, and I, I didn't want them to be like, oh, this awesome wine list. I'll have a beer because, you know, God, I know what it's like to look at a, to watch a tab that you would hope be $60 for you in a date turn into $160. You know, that, that happens easily with wine. I also wanted to, uh, and I, I've written various versions of this in our wine list where I probably, it's, there's probably like five people that actually read the goddamn thing. But um, I wanted people to know that um, I, I was not going to be too proud to serve inexpensive wine that was representative of, of what it is. I feel like it's crazy that people, you know, no one goes to the grocery store and and picks up a bottle of wine for dinner that they're going to make at their house that night and says, okay, which $30 to $50 bottle am I going to pick out? I mean, they, they're going for the $10 to $15 stuff or, you know, I mean, maybe even less. But um, I feel like in, in that, you know, you hear people all the time when they travel, they, you know, uh, some friends of mine just got back from Spain and, you know, they, they drank wine at every, and listen, it's, probably cheap plant garnacha. It's, you know, it's not going to be very special, but it's wine to go with a meal. And they and, drank wine. And, and they drank wine. Right. And, and so As for me- As opposed to vodka. Right. right. Exactly. I yeah. actually, a funny story. We had to, we had a, uh, it was um, a Vina Borgia, but it, it's totally like ripe, juicy, cheap as shit and totally fine to drink garnacha. It's a stuff, it's a stuff that you'd buy, if you were served at a dinner party, you'd be like, okay, whatever. We had to stop. We priced it so cheap because I can't remember what it cost wholesale. It was something like four bucks a bottle or whatever. And I was like, okay, well, this is awesome. We're going to charge $14 a bottle. We're still making like good money. Yeah, you're still, that's it a good. But yeah. it, like people were partying way too hard with it. Like we actually, they started, they, somebody reprogrammed in our point of sale system. They, they re- renamed it party as the name of the one because people would come in and they would drink. I mean, they would house, you know, multiple bottles of it, which led to predictable Right. Pretty bad things. Property damage. Yeah. It was, it was all sorts of problems. Uh, Ambulance yeah. calling. Yeah, well, I never <laughs> – right. I, it's not – it wasn't like a scene from Roadhouse or anything. But there were there were like definitely times where it's like I can't believe of all the, the shit that would get out of control. It would be caused by wine. Uh, no one saw that one coming. But I, I wanted our wine list when we opened to be economically accessible and I wanted it to be – I wanted it to be thoughtful. But I, I wanted it to be like, man, if you want to come in here and knock down a – we still do it to this day. A, a five dollar glass of cava, you can do that. And a lot of it for me to not to be su- super sentimental about it, but I remember what it was like to want to try all this stuff and to not have a lot of money. And it um, it sucks to be to feel poor and to feel like you can't have interesting food be because you don't have a lot of money. We we always at the Monterey have had you know ways that you can eat and drink really really cheaply if you want to. And there's um. There's a lot of people who do that, and that's that will always be really gratifying for me. We we do that at all of our restaurants. There's, you know, you can go in and spend a lot of money, but if if you want to go in and have a, a a bowl or a plate of food and something to drink that's not wretched, that that can happen, and you can you can get that done for fifteen bucks. Because subsequently, you open some other places. Yes, yes, we we opened uh, so we did the Monterey, which was total fun. I mean, not fun all the time, but it was mostly fun. But we, you know, it wasn't really meant as a commercial enterprise. I mean. Spoiler alert, kids, don't open up a 900-square-foot restaurant in Texas. But um, we, we did Barbaro next. We had, some, we had some really good and well-intentioned investors who wanted to see us do take the spirit of what we had done at the Monterey and translate it into 
to some more places that made money. Well, yeah, something that could be uh, what's the euphemism? I mean, something that could be more commercial, but yeah, something that could actually make money and and sustain and 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 scale. Well, that our group could scale and and do more stuff. So we opened up a place called Barbaro, which again, a terrible reason to open a restaurant. It was at the end of the block from my house in this cool old building that had had this really sort of mediocre coffee shop in it, and um, the landlord knew me and asked if I wanted to do something, and then this dovetailed with. Our original chef at the at the Monterey, who's this brilliant guy, he's my partner, Quayley Watson, uh, a really, really just incredibly talented and, and good guy. He'd gotten tired of the grind of what he was doing at the Monterey and uh, went on the uh, went on a vision quest, as we called it, to figure out like, okay, what does he really want to cook? What does he want to do? And does he want to do it with me or whatever? And um, he came back and we started talking about this idea that became the restaurant Hot Joy. Hot, you know, the Monterey was doing a lot of the sort of I can call it overwrought or overcomposed sort of food. It was meant to photograph beautifully, and it was it was really great. But it was definitely that style of food that was um, I, I don't know. It was in line with what everybody was sort of doing at the time. I mean, we were, we were aspirational to mimic the food that like Wiley Dufresne was doing and, and and that sort of stuff. And so we wanted Hot Joy to sort of be the opposite of that, which is like if it doesn't make sense in a in a, a paper to go carton, we're not putting it on the menu there. Like it's it's radically undercomposed and completely unfussy, and our, our food at the Monterey always veered because this was a lot of what Quayley was interested in. There were there were there were a lot of Asian sort of influences with what we were doing, and Hot Joy was sort of a natural extension for that. So we at the same time, Base came along for for Hot Joy after we had been running it as a pop up at the Monterey during the times where the Monterey was closed, and then yeah, that became Hot Joy. So now we're at three restaurants, and we are um, about to start work on a taqueria idea. Which uh, is in, in San Antonio. When you say you're going to open a taqueria, uh, you know everybody nods and goes, "Well, of course you are." Um, and, and but for us, we're excited about it. We're also like, you know, it's the most fraught with danger project we've done because okay, we're cooking ironic Asian mashup food at Hot Joy, whatever. You know, that's I guess that would be different if we were maybe somewhere in the Northwest or whatever, or, or in Flushing. But here, you know, we're in, we are in San Antonio, Texas, which no matter what any assholes from Austin try to tell you, we invented tacos. And all of a sudden we're going to do, you know, we're going to do a taqueria and we're, it, it brings a bunch of sort of like interesting, like, okay, what are we going to do? It, it's, there's a whole bunch of us uh, of things that we really have to think through for a taqueria to, to do what we want to do in San Antonio. So of the three restaurants that you have, how does the clientele differ? Um, I, I think that there there is a lot of overlap. I think that we there's a lot of other really great restaurants that have opened in San Antonio in the last five years. But I think that we definitely still we appeal strongly to the people that are looking for you know some sort of creative, thoughtful edge with what we're doing. We tend not to cater to generic tastes for the most part. I mean, the way that I like to try to say it in an aspirational way is that. We assume that our customers and guests are smart and have good taste. We don't assume that they're a bunch of mongrels who've never had, you know, anything other than cheeseburgers in their life. And so we do get a lot of common overlap. Monterey definitely skews towards people who are more, who are, who are really the sort of wild eaters and have a lot of interesting tastes. Um, Maybe a little younger. You know, it does. it's just weird. That place is impossible to figure out. It does skew a little bit younger, but I'm not sure how much. And then Barbaro is is probably our it has the most broad appeal because it's a pizzeria, it's a it's an interesting pizzeria, but it's it's the most straightforward. And then and then Hot Joy probably skews the most young because you can go in there and order you know a bowl of food for for nine bucks, and it's it's probably like you know over designed. It's 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 way over the top. The intensity of color and the, everything else that we do there, and it's also like man, the the food at Hot Joy is 
deeply, deeply flavored. It is, we use tons of, you know, a lot of fermentation, a lot of intensity that we try to add into dishes. It's, it's a, people that are picky eaters would have a hard time with most of our places, but definitely with the Monterey and Hot Joy. But the Monterey is the one where you have most of your wines. Yes. That we, so at Hot Joy, again, part of the idea of like doing this in in an effort to make money is that we're still going to do cool wine stuff, but we're not, we're going to, we're going to pick our battles a little bit more. For instance, at Barbaro, we have a, um, we have a, a, well-selected, but frankly, fairly uninspiring by the glass list. But we've developed a reserve list over time. We've slowly added some things to that. And what's nice about Barbaro, it's the probably our, our customers there you know, spend a little bit more money than at our other places. And it's in a, a slightly more um, wealthy neighborhood or whatever. So we can sell things like Saxon and Aubert and some of these more fun to play with, you know, really cool culty wines at Barbaro. It's still not like I mean, I've always thought it's the dumbest thing in the world that just because you're like, you know, a pizzeria or Italian that you can only have Italian wine. So we play with a lot of stuff. I mean, there's French stuff on there and it's just, a, it's it's sort of like a a more safe version of what the Monterey's list is and it skews a little more expensive. Uh, but it's not a big part of what we do. Barbaro is underpinned by a really great bar program run by uh, a woman, Elizabeth Forsyth, who makes incredible cocktails and it's it's really great stuff. So Hot Joy, the the thing, same, uninspiring by the glass list, but we've got this sort of insane, well, it started as a Riesling list, and then it really expanded into all the sort of similar varietals. And I I said I I wanted to have like the longest Riesling list in Texas, and I've ended up having the longest Sharuba list in Texas by total accident. It's so – you know the reasoning list at, at at Hot Joy is the is the place where I can go crazy and buy all the silly stuff and and we we buy in small increments and you know a lot of the stuff to get it to Texas we have to buy it you know DI in advance and so we'll get a case of this particular wine we'll get a case of Hexham Report for every year and Billy Schaefer you know Spade Lazy and we'll when they're done they're done and uh, so it keeps it sort of ever rotating and cool and Monterey is the one where literally from it, it has just metastasized. To this sort of, you know, the staff vacillates between loving it and just really hating it because it's big and it's ever changing. It's it's the least static wine program I think I can have. I I sort of had I reached a point with it where I'm like, do I want to control this and be a little smarter with it, or just say, fuck it, we're just gonna like explode it into the stratosphere? And I sort of chose the latter stratosphere. Yeah, well, it doesn't, <laughs> and it's disorganized in terms. I mean, in terms of how it's written, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't spend much time thinking through like, well, I'm a little heavy on lower valley reds right now, you know? So I, I mean, I just buy what I'm sort of into at the moment. And it, it, it's almost like non-curated to the extent that I buy, I try to make time for a lot of our good reps. And I actually seek out a lot of the stuff and wear people out in New York and San Francisco. I'm like, get me these wines, get me these wines. And Does that take a lot of work? It takes a shit ton of work. It takes It takes a lot of work. And when the wine gets there, do people go like, man, you have to put a shit ton of work in to get Well, yeah, wine. maybe like five people. I mean, we still have to tell the story of why it's important. What's funny is we have developed a group of people who are like, you know, do you think you'll ever get any Davosat? And I'm like, no, no, probably not. Like, you know, Papa's Steakhouse gets apparently all of it that comes to Texas or whatever. The frustrating thing about how hard it is to find wine is not the effort because that's, I mean, I don't know. That's probably half the fun is chasing it down. It's sort of like there's this perception 
and and more so in San Antonio than the other cities. Like, oh well, this doesn't this won't sell well. This won't, here. Sell. This won't sell well. It's like, well, we can't we can't fucking get it. I mean, how? It, I think it would be amazing. Some of the stuff I see when I go to you know the the big coastal cities, it's like, man, this would smoke if it were in Texas, or if it were in Texas and it didn't cost like you know. Ten dollars more than I see it for retail for at you know at wine shops because that that happens a lot too. You see these, I'll see retail prices and be like, oh crap, my wholesale price is higher than for something like that. It, it's gratifying, but it's really hard to get it to Texas. It's kind of like looking at someone and being like, he could never ski, <laughs> and then right. being like, well, what if you gave him some skis and some snow? <laughs> right. It's just that it doesn't happen to be any here right now. Yeah, that's that's a it's an apt metaphor for sure. I think that. Well, and really, part of it's that, that Texans are, you know, a bunch of raised on, you know, Lone Star Beer guys like me are learning about wine as they grow up and get interested in it. But a lot of it is just the the total influx of people that are moving here that are that, that know a lot more about it. And, it. and it has improved a lot. Like, oh, you see people from like other parts of the country moving here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Moving to every big city in Texas. I mean, Austin wishes they would stop moving there. But um, yeah, they're, they're, they're all moving here. And so I, I think that... Um, there's definitely more robust demand, and it's it's sort of trickling along. And it's interesting because like a lot of this stuff. I mean, well, uh, Paris Wine Company, uh, we, they got to Texas a couple of weeks ago, and I think we're the third state. They were in New York and California, and so we're the third state. And you know, we've got a lot of Josh's wines that that we're working with and selling, and you know, people are digging them. People people are really into them. We've we've officially, I think, sold through whatever the first shipment was of the Francois Xavier Cote de Rhone, which is an inexpensive but really beautiful little wine. That that we like to work with. It's it's to me. I, there's a there, I definitely wear it as a badge of honor. And I'm like, yes, we we took everything we were allocated and sold it out. Like the uh, Marcel Lapierre Raisins Galo, we sold everything that Ian had. I mean, Ian sold out of the Ian with Rootstock Wines, who's a great new distributor in Austin. But we sold everything they had for this. And it's like, God, if we'd sell 50 cases of of that wine a year if there was enough that was designated for Texas. Is there a part where the consumers are like, whoa, something new. This is novel. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I felt like I always had an advantage at the Monterey with respect to what we could do with our wine program and not having to carry the most common varietals and certainly not having to carry the normal familiar producers that they were coming to our place for something a little bit different. And so it's like if they're coming here for something different food wise, then let's let's take that Pinot Grigio drinker and put them in a peak pool and see what happens if they like it. I think we've had we've had a lot of success with that for sure. It's, I mean, listen, most of this stuff is definitely uh, a hand sell, and especially there's it's easy to take like a an oaky cabernet drinker and steer him towards an oaky syrah or whatever from California, but it's a little bit harder when you get into wines that you know that are carbonic or, or whatever, especially some of the natural wines that that skew a little bit more lean and and all that sort of stuff. Those are a little bit more tricky to get those guys to understand because you know we can't take someone who just who has the budget to buy wine. I love Costa Brown. Well, you might not like Sandy as much as Costa Brown, but here's why you should give a shit about it. But you sold a lot of Lapierre. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, one right. of those lighter, you know, little funky, less yes. sulfur wines, right? It, yes, totally. And that's, that is stylistically, it's really nice to introduce that to somebody, like to, to introduce that style of wine and have them get into it. Like, when people come and they're bummed out that we finally sold out of the last of this funky old orange wine from Scolian Project, that's very gratifying that you've taken – you've not just taken a, a Pinot drinker and made them love some pretty little, you know, Borgogna. You've you've taken somebody in a totally different direction. And, and of course, at that point, once you have somebody that has had a good experience, man, they'll trust you to watch their kids for the weekend when it comes to wine. 
They'll they'll let you do whatever. But it sounds also kind of like if you get them to that level of experience, there's nowhere else locally for them to go. No, there's not. There's not a ton of places right now. I mean, there's there's some restaurants that do a a good job with their wine program. I, I, it, it's going to come off as me talking shit, but there's not. There there really aren't a lot of great wine lists in a in terms of what we want to do. The boundary pushing stuff. I mean, it just drives me fucking crazy to see like Voclico on a on a menu of a restaurant that's supposed to be about you know progressive dining or whatever the deal is. It's just like, oh, give me a break. And the thing about you know wine lists like that, it's like, dude, that's just lazy. That's just, I mean, there's there's plenty of better stuff and there's plenty of cheaper stuff out there. If that's if you're worried about your margins or price or whatever, that's just you not giving a shit and taking the easy the easy way out. But grower champagne is one thing, but cherry's kind of another, right? <laughs> yeah, right? In terms of, and you have a lot of them. We we have a bunch of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff is just it's almost like a suicide mission with some of these things. But it's, uh, I've always sort of tried to justify it with a bigger picture sort of thing. Like you know, we want people to come in. I feel like when someone goes and drinks a Montiato for the first time, and um. That to me is part and parcel of their entire experience. The same way that we do, I used to say in the in the early days of the Monterey, because the work was very hard, the food that we were doing in the in the place in which we were, we were doing it, I used to say that ninety percent of what we do here only matters about ten percent of the people that walk through the door, and it's still worth doing. We we exist for those ten percent of the people, and I, I like the idea of all of these different little tiny experiences. We bought an espresso machine and sourced really really great coffee when we opened up the Monterey at a time where every other well still for the most part every other restaurant coffee service is, is shit. And um, you know I'm I'm of those school of guys that would say like why in the world would you put all this effort into this food and this beverage program and then serve people crap coffee at the end of it? It's just it's nuts. And so to me, I think they're beans actually. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, I, I like the idea of all of these experiences accumulating into like, man, I went there and the food was sort of weird. I'm not sure I liked it, but it was interesting. And I had a wine that I never had before that was pretty good. And the coffee at the end of it was really actually, it tasted really good. I, I've, I've always bet, and, and Sherry plays into that, like going in and we've done silly stuff before where we actually will miss out, you know, like a one ounce pour of manzanilla with a dish and say, you should try this with this. And it's not, you know, it's, it's, you know, uh, it's Lagatana now it's been, you know, Hidalgo before it's, there's, there's lots of relatively inexpensive stuff. And by the way, we've got a lot of the sherry sent back, like, this is gross. I don't want to drink this, but there are a lot of people that are like, okay, I, I, I get this, but I mean, send me the pickleback. I can't <laughs> stand this sherry. Well, right. Well, it's, it's, and it's totally, but that's how serious we felt about it. Like you will put our money, we will give you 40 cents worth of manzanilla because we want to get you to try it, even if only two out of 10 people sort of get into it or whatever. But sh- our sherry program is there. And of course, now Mezcal has really exploded um, as a thing. But to the point now where I'm like, I'm almost worried that we're too much in the cliche of like of wine nerds because now it's like it could not be more like, okay, yes, of course you serve natural wine. And of course you serve sherry. And of course you serve impossible to find Mezcal. Like how original it must be for you, you know? I, I probably I mean, actually, who says that people from New York? Or oh, pro- yeah, well, I mean, maybe this is probably me being neurotic about the whole thing. It's just like you know, I, I've always told people like the danger of a place like the Monterey and a wine program like we have is you don't want to seem like you're doing it just to do it, like to be a douche, right? We're yeah. serving shit you've never heard of, right. bro. Uh, We're so much better than you, right? right. How dumb you must feel to not be able to pronounce right. Milanovan. I didn't want to do it for that reason. I you wanted, wanted to expect that people could reach that level. You wanted to yes. expect that they were going to be into it. We, we so Not everyone, but some. Right. We serve what we serve because we like it and we like to drink it and we hope that you like to drink it too. 
And um, and that that enthusiasm sometimes when you're dealing with things that are unfamiliar, that's hard to convey. That's why for a lot of places, including the Monterey, it can come off as snobbish or, or snobbish snobbishness or arrogance. And uh, it's a real trick with staff to talk about how how excited they have to be about what they're doing. You know, and I've, I even give our staff the freedom. It's like, dude, if you think that this weird carbonic, you know, cop that we're serving from Laura Valley is gross, then you don't have to serve it. Like, find what you're interested in. If you're more interested in, you know, a, a different style of wine, then go serve it to them. But because, find what you're authentically interested in because that'll convey. Because I could see hiring being a big challenge and yeah. that people would want to be like, you know, coming in as a waiter and being like, yeah, I'm working at the cool place. Aren't I cooler than you to God, the staff? Yes, you know? And you have yes. to constantly bring them back in and be like, no, what you want to do is be like, isn't this cool what we're doing together? Right. Well, that's what's nice about San Antonio. It's like you live in San Antonio. You don't get to pull the cool card on anybody. Like, you, you know, if you're the coolest kid in San Antonio, you're the skinniest kid at fat camp. So, you know, get the fuck over yourself. But um, I think I, for us, it's, it's always been that balancing act. And the wine thing is in particular because – even if you're not going to get into the sort of like snobby conventional elitism of of Bordeaux and Burgundy, you're still going to deal with the elitism that comes with that. Oh, I, I can't believe you've never heard of this producer. You know, how do you not know who you know Jean Foyard is or or whatever the deal is? And um, there's just as much danger in appearing to be a douche doing that as there is only selling classified growth and Gerges wine. So how would you summarize the style of the actual wine list? Because to me, it seems kind of stream of consciousness, kind of letting letting the consumer in on your thoughts. Right. We, we do try to be somewhat responsive to climate. You know, our 80% of our seating, available seating is outdoors. So, you know, it's 102 degrees in San Antonio right now. So you're, you're not going to find a lot of the big brawny roans that will sell in, um, in the winter. So, I mean – it's somewhat seasonal responsive. A, a, a lot of, you know, Vendaswaf type stuff on the red side right now because, again, this is sort of a of a developing wine culture. People still are much more prone to drink red wine. So, you know, we're going to put a lot of higher acid red stuff on a, on a slight chill. We're going to try to, we, you know, we, we have a separate call out Beaujolais section at the moment with, you know, 11 different producers on it. We're going to push, we're going to push people in those directions. But for the most part, like, what I really want people to do is to look at that list and be overwhelmed to the extent where they engage and talk. And it's a lot for any one of our servers to be able to be conversational about this list. And I'm not able to be at the restaurant nearly as much as I would like to anymore. But I, I want to encourage that conversation. And, and our staff, listen, they they can all they can all get a lot better, but they're they're light years ahead of a lot of other people in the industry. And they're in terms of their ability to sort of concierge people through this list a little bit. And say like, you know, break it down by what are your preferences? Okay, well, if you, you know, if you like this, maybe you'd give something like this a shot. And, you know, a lot of it is we we open and drink wine a lot at the restaurant. So they can say like, oh, I had this wine yesterday. That that tends to be the thing, oddly enough, that may, there's probably some, you know, revelation about human psychology here. But when you say like, I had this wine last night, it was totally delicious. Uh, Still maybe, standing. Yeah, maybe give it, maybe give <laughs> it a shot. I'm not in the hospital yet. Well, yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, it's, it's, I don't know. It's people feel, uh, you know, our, our staff can feel more comfortable because it's fresh in their mind. And instead of having to go, I'd be like, Oh, what the hell did that taste like? How am I going to describe this right. to somebody who's, who's already taking a list? I've tried to tell like our staff that, that we don't buy, we don't buy generic, you know, wine that's boring. So you're never, you're never going to get, you're never going to get wine that is just, it's bought to be cheap enough. Like, oh, this is our Pinot selection and it's kind of not totally gross. You know, if it's on our menu, it's on the menu for a reason and there's going to be something redeeming in it. Now, especially as we move to feature more natural winemakers, it, it, it gets a little bit tricky with some of this stuff. And 
a lot of those wines, I have to tell our staff, you know, be careful on what you're actually serving the people on. Don't do not take who's someone who wants a big juicy cab and you know and put them in something from Jura or whatever. But it seems like there's a lot of actual text written on the wine list. T- yeah, a ton. And I've I've actually even pared it down because we ended up with this like you know forty page document that was just you know probably frighteningly like the inside of my brain. We we tried to streamline it down a little bit, but there was a time where literally you know on a on a wine list that has anywhere between 150 and 200 bottles on any one time, I, I would write like a paragraph or include like a tasting note from Parker or Tanzer or somebody to try to give to try to give them a little bit of background. To help to, people out. Right. Well, I didn't want to like have to, I didn't want to feel like going to church or going to school to have to go and sort through this wine list. It just became impossible as much as, as the, the wine list right now is as good as it's been at the Monterey in terms of what I want it to be, which is this really borderline frenetic sort of thing. Like it changes a lot. We're going to buy stuff and and have some fun with it for a little while. And then it's going to be gone because we want to bring something else in that's new. I don't, I get bored to tears, you know, seeing the same wines on this list. And, you know, the Monterey has a menu that changes literally every day. We've always had that sort of culinary mantra. So it'd be idiotic to have a wine list where we had the same wine on there for a year. I mean, we wouldn't do that with any food item we had on our menu. So why should we do it with our with our wine list? But yeah, it happens. People come in, oh, I love that wine. Well, hopefully we've replaced it with something that, that you might like too. Yeah, because we picked that one. We picked this other one. We like them both. Right, that exactly. That kind of vibe. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, uh, and the other thing I should say about our, our list at the Monterey is, is we started using the Corvin about, about a year ago. How'd that change things for you? Uh, well, I think all of my distributors hate it. Because you know, we the Monterey is a tiny restaurant. We don't, we never did huge volume, but um, now it's literally like we might sell, you know, a bottle. two bottles of yeah, this, yeah. a bottle of this, three bottles of this, and um, you know, we work with every distributor in town because it's more important for me to find what I like than, than to make it easy. And so, you know, twelve different guys are making these relatively small shipments to us. From a from a consumer side, though, it's it's phenomenal. I think it is, and and it works. Like we're getting people to try like a glass of Saxon. Things that would otherwise be sort of like financially, well, it would it would just be too damn expensive for most people to bite off on it. But it does sound a little bit like for you, it's a little bit like wearing the hair shirt. You know, it's like, well, if I beat myself enough, I'll save some people. Like, you know, I'm going to make this as hard as possible. I'm going to bring in new ones to stay. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to work with every distributor. I'm going to order two bottles and then reorder. You know, you're constantly in movement. It's like how much do you have to beat yourself up to show people you care? Yeah, I I don't I don't know. It's a good question. I there are moments where I sort of feel like that. It's like God, could you why don't you just do this? Why don't you change it like 6 times a year and make your life a whole lot easier? Um something about it for me is like as we as we've done the two Barbaro and Hot Joy it's like those restaurants were designed to be more commercial, and I if if this this business is way too goddamn hard to not enjoy to not enjoy elements of it, not take a lot of pride and pleasure in what you're doing. If if it were if it were just an economic exercise for me, I'd be build, building subdivisions, you know, out by SeaWorld or whatever, which is like way easier. I, I joke with my friends. I I work about three times as hard for about a third as much money being in the restaurant business, and if I can't carve out you know, elements of that job that are just the most pure sort of expression of what I'm interested in, then shit, I'll just go build subdivisions again. And that's, that's a little bit of hyperbole or whatever. But I do feel like Quayle, uh, my chef and partner, uh, he, in the earliest days of the Monterey, when he took it over and was doing just really insane amounts of work and insane quality of work, you know, he, um, 
he just his his mantra in the kitchen was really simple because he's not he's not a very loquacious guy. He just said, "No shortcuts. We don't do shortcuts." And that really resonated with me. It's like we don't do things the easy way here. Even if you make tons of work for yourself, that's not what this place is about. The spirit of our ramshackle little joint will always be: we do what we love, and sometimes what you love is harder. And and it it shouldn't feel like a restaurant. It shouldn't feel like a wallet grab. It should feel like you're in when when the Monterey's at its best. It feels like a clubhouse that everybody can come into. And we don't always live up to that standard, but I think the wine list is a big part of that. And yeah, God, we whip ourselves with it a bunch, but I, I absolutely, I've made stabs at doing less of that. I just, I couldn't see doing it the other way. Not there, not there. One of the things that tends to happen when a restaurant's been really influential is that the staff who work there leave and go start up their own restaurant, you know, maybe influenced by what they saw. Like, you know, when you think about a Gramercy Tavern or when you think about somebody who worked for David Chang and went to like Serpico kind of thing. Right. Have people who worked for you gone off and, and been like, yeah, we're doing this cool little funky thing? We no. Um, in fact, we've we've been really lucky to to retain virtually virtually everybody who started with me at the Monterey. I'm trying to think there's no one on the front of house side who worked with me at the Monterey. There's one person. There's one person who worked with me at the Monterey that is working in the service industry that doesn't work with us. And Basically, everybody who we opened that restaurant with have still sort of stayed with us. And uh, but got, you opened new restaurants, so yeah. you gave them some growth opportunities. Yeah, we, and so they had the ability to sort of grow with us and do more or less what that what they want to do. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a lot of people that are looking to emulate our business model in San Antonio, just because, especially a place like the Monterey, because it's so sort of insane. I feel like one of the things that I wanted to do in in our business was was work on having the sort of culture where people didn't have to leave. There was a role for them if they were interested in, in staying in the industry, there was no reason for them to go anywhere else. They could do whatever they wanted to do with us. We've, there's all these guys in our group that we've worked with really from the beginning. And that's a really special thing for me, that sort of, of continuity. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure why exactly it is. I do know that a lot of places in San Antonio are not, are not exactly as prone to take chances as we are. San Antonio is, and I get it, man. Every economic instinct tells you in a business where it's it's hard to make money when you're busy in this in this stupid business. And so like everything you can do to add predictability to this business, you want to try to do, right? But I think we're, we're always willing to take a few more chances maybe than some other folks. And hopefully our, our culture allows people to want to do that. They, I can guarantee you they won't have as cool a wine list anywhere they go. I'm going to get shit from people back home if, because it sounds like I'm running them down. I don't, I don't want it to sound like that. <laughs> but what are things that just didn't work where you tried it and you're like, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe not? Uh, well, I feel like now probably one of the reasons where the list has metastasized is because of the Corvin. Like now we don't even worry about like if we bring on something and everybody hates it. OK, well, we bought a case of it and we'll sell it eventually or I'll drink it because that's that's the ultimate backstop is, oh, well, Chad will buy it and drink it or whatever. The, the I'm trying to think of like stuff that didn't work. It was always, it was, <laughs> well, okay. I'll tell you something that people really got pissed off about. The first summer we were open because I really admire uh, the wine bar terroir in New York and, and, um, and what Paul Grico did over there. We did, we participated in summer of Riesling and, but we didn't just like do, I think at the time you had to have pour five by the glass or something. And then you had to commit to doing it for the whole summer. We said the only wine that we will pour by the glass for the entire summer will be Riesling, which, you know, we're on a patio and it's hot as shit and it, may, it sort of makes sense. But People got so mad. And we had a really broad, so, you know, we had plenty of like, you know, Alsatian. We had plenty of drier styles and we had we had plenty of off-dry stuff. But we're like, no, Summer of Riesling, that's what we're going to do. That irritated the hell out of people. And like friends of mine were like, I don't understand. That's That seems like 
unnecessarily antagonistic to somebody. And I'm just like, you know what? There's plenty of places for you to eat in San Antonio. You come back in September and you can have, or buy a bottle. You can still buy a bottle of anything, but if you're drinking by the glass, this is what you, this is what you're going to drink. Um, that did not work very well. We did not replicate that in, uh, in future summers because people really got pissed off about it. In terms of like what I feel like one of the sad things about wine lists is if you price it correctly, most anything will work. Like even crap. Like it's got wine has got to be real bad for people not to to want to drink it. And that's that's sort of depressing. To me, it feeds into why so many wine lists are uninspired. I mean, but you could say the same thing about, you know, beer lists or whatever, where people are not particularly thoughtful about it. Well, a lot of customers are not thoughtful about it. And again, I'm not particularly judgmental about it. If you want to you know, uh, if you want to come and have your requisite two glasses of icy cold white wine that you just don't want to taste like anything, then okay, that's that's cool. I just don't feel like we are – everything that we've done has been such an uphill battle at the Monterey. I'm not sure that anything has quote-unquote worked in the sense of like, oh, we've latched into this thing where we're doing crazy volume. I probably never focused too much about like, oh, let's really maximize our sales on this. I mean, our by-the-glass Cava guys love it, but it's pretty boring stuff, you know? I don't know. Nothing, nothing is, has really failed because it's just this. We don't really, to a fault at the Monterey, we do not. We do not judge success in economic terms. We judge success and are, are we happy with what this place is? So, how's your own palate changed over time? I mean, what were you into before? What are you into now? What are you into in, in the future? I, I will. I will proudly admit that Robert Parker made wine accessible for me. I started with the big, overblown Australian Shiraz wines, which still have a very special place in my heart. I mean, I'm probably the cliched, you know, American. And then within that, you know, Texan of sugar is what made sense to me and fruit and extraction is what made sense to me. I'm not sure that I could have detected between a higher acid wine and just crap astringent, you know, uh, industrial wine that, that was, I'm sure what I was drinking when I drank wine back in those days for whatever that, I guess at a wedding reception or something. So going from those big giant monster bombs to getting into, uh, I actually just saw him in the lobby. He was working uh, for a distributor at the time, a guy named Joel McKee, works for Broadbent right now and uh, an excellent guy. And um, Joel and I, he was working at Joe Sag Glimbini's, our local bottle shop. I'd read about the 2003 Beaujolais vintage, which was producing these sort of weird, atypical wines. And Joel special ordered, um, it was one of the debuff crew labels. They've got a bazillion of them or whatever. I can't remember what it was now, but it was from the 2003 vintage. And that was when I first got, I, I was drinking these wines going, okay, this is, this is interesting. It's, it's not big giant California or, or Australia, but I kind of sort of get it. And in a weird way, Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais was a really fascinating gateway for me to get into, I, I think more classical. And of course, for me, it, it really started and still remains in France where you can get into some of these more traditionally made wines and start to understand whatever it means that the idea of, you know, terroir and whatnot. But I, I got into it because it was easy to read like, you know, explosions of dark cherry covered asphalt juice in your mouth, uh, 98 points. And, and you could go buy these wines. That was the other thing. You could go buy these high point, high scoring wines for 30 bucks or 40 bucks. And, um, and get them pretty easily, you know, very little acid and tons of fruit. And so that's where I started. And I drank, I drank a ton of them until, you know, I really, part of it was my palate getting better. Part of it was just probably boredom after a while. Those, those wines are still, I am a staunch defender of those sort of wines when you're in the mood for those sort of wines. I mean, I think that, 
I think they're great and I hate I hate the derision that people will sometimes make towards stylistically it's not correct or whatever. I mean, you can say you don't like it, that's fine. There's plenty of stuff we all don't like, but the 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 danger of the wine world to pronounce things as correct or incorrect um I I don't I don't know that I get on board with that. But definitely getting towards towards leaner and lighter styled wines. I mean again, it's sort of a cliche, but a, a lot of the producers uh in the Institute of Balance camp, I think that they're doing, you know, they're definitely more intellectual and their stuff that um, you know, probably not not as suitable at a at a party or with super loud music maybe but i love what a lot of those guys are doing i, I love the young natural winemakers in france who are um who are doing really sort of interesting thoughtful sort of things and, and a lot of time you know a lot of the stuff they're doing where they're declassifying because it's they're bucking tradition from wherever those wines are being made i mean more and more veering towards leaner lighter styles and also like the low alcohol thing too you know it's nice to be able to get into some of these wines and I love I love to drink giant quantities of wine. So to be able to drink things that are that are not just waylaid with alcohol is self preservation, I guess, maybe more than anything. And where do you think San Antonio is going in terms of a wine scene? What's going to happen in the future? I, you know, I don't know that there's much of of, of a wine scene, and I'm I, I'm I have thought about doing something with wine that would be you know, wine bar has just the worst connotation in the world, right? It's like you know. It is the sort of like douchiest thing you automatically imagine in your head. I, I don't know whether or not it could support a wine bar. I, maybe if it was scaled really, really appropriately. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a real market for that in San Antonio. I think San Antonio is still very, very early in its development. There's a lot of room to grow. I do, I do worry about the, buying wine as a retail customer because that's going to get harder and harder for the – the small focus shops and the places like Joe Saglin Benny's to compete with the big, like total wine and, and the big giant, even the local wine stores are getting, they're building these super centers or whatever. I mean, I was able to learn about wine by going to Joe Saglin Benny's every Saturday when, you know, four different distributors were tasting stuff and be able to, to taste and learn. And I tell our staff all the time, you know, they'll look at information online and we I'll provide them with information. I'm like, guys, there's no substitute for drinking this. If you want to learn about wine, you got to drink wine. That's, that's the only way that it can happen. I worry about the, the 23 year old Chad Carey today. Like how would, how would that guy find out about stuff? There's information everywhere, but there's some, it's probably akin to like, you know, people that used to buy records that bemoan that you can't buy music like that anymore. There's something tactile about going into the shop, seeing the bottle, you know, but I think a lot of what you've done at the Monterey is, Try to reach the younger you. Totally. You know, be totally. like, hey, man, I wish this had been around when I was coming up. Yeah, well, yes, you've hit it right on the head because that's that's exactly what I want this place to be. Like, the I I remember reading about all these wines in the various publications and being like, okay, well, that's great, but Cinequinon is, you know, $800 a bottle. How in the world am I going to do it, you know, do something like that? And so we, we with Corvin, we can pour Cinequinon by the glass. You can, what I, I think it's like 40 bucks. I'll sell a three-ounce pour of Cinequinon for... Or 40 bucks. And yeah, definitely 23-year-old Chad would have been all over that. Not all the time, but like would I have gone in there and had a glass of Cinequinon and a cheeseburger and had it been a big deal? Yeah, I mean that's – I feel like at some point so much of what I want to be is that place where people can discover discover things and try things and that will always be a big part of who I am. The Monterey is a big part of who Chad Carey is. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Appreciate it. Chad Carey of the Monterey in San Antonio. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, 
and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.